you for tuning in to the Journey Podcast. May today's message help you in your own spiritual journey. Today's speaker is Pastor Joel Bingledon, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Warren, Pennsylvania. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you all here today. And uh, one correction, Jeff, uh, I'm not a guest. For the last eight years, I've sat right back here with all of you folks. <laughs> But uh, it's a joy to be able to, uh, to share from God's Word with you all this morning. I'll mention, uh, if you picked up a bulletin, there is on the back a um, uh, little handout that you can fill in. And Lord willing, I uh, will we'll follow along with that so you'll be able to, to track with what's going on this morning. Thank you, Ted, for leading us in worship this morning. It was uh, an uplifting time of worship to God. And now as we look at worshiping God through His Word... And as uh, Pastor Jeff has prayed that God through His Holy Spirit would speak to us today, and that's my prayer as well as we begin and look at this. I'm excited about the uh, passage that we're going to be looking at today, and I think there's a slide there somewhere. Eric, are we uh, on board? There we go. Great, thank you. I want to start out this morning by uh, just talking a little bit uh, with you about some ideas. I'm sure all of us have probably heard stories where uh, somebody has done some amazing feat and they saved the life of another. And in return, that one who is saved uh, commits and gives themselves to that person for the rest of their life. Now, this is not as common today, but historically this has been very common, typically in battle situations and so forth. And this is called a, when a person does this and commits himself to another person, it's called a life debt. Now, most of you might think, well, that's me. I'm in debt up to the ears with my credit cards. <laughs> but it's not the same thing. A life debt is when someone feels that they owe to somebody else. And today I want to unpack that a little bit as we look at this question of how much do you love Jesus? How much do I love Jesus? Now, on the surface, it might seem like a simple answer, but I want to dig a little deeper into the depths of our soul as we seek to answer that. In his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripken unpacks this concept of <clears throat> the insanity of God asking his followers, you and me, to endure extreme hardship, pain, suffering, and persecution. Nick was attempting in this book, or he wasn't attempting to write a book, but in his desire to try to find out about what makes Christians tick, he uh, covers in this book his interview with people all over the world in very difficult situations, and he sought to answer this question. Is Jesus worth it? Have you ever asked that yourself? Is Jesus worth it? Is it worth me serving Jesus? I mean, what a headache to have to come to church every Sunday. What a headache to have to put money in the offering plate. God asked for 10% or more. What a headache, but have you ever been in a situation where you really have to ask, is Jesus really worth it? And uh, I want to pick up on a story in his book. Some of you may have read it. If not, I'd encourage you to do it. As it said, in Sandy God. I'm going to tell you a little bit about a man in there, but an introduction who Nick Ripton was able to, to meet. This man is a Russian man. His name is Dmitry. Dmitry was a father living in rural Russia back under communist rule. And he'd grown up in a Christian home. And in the Christian home, uh, he uh, eventually, the churches were, were being stamped out by communism. 
And his family growing up got to the point where they weren't able to really go to church anymore, fellowship with other believers. And he sort of fell away from the Lord. Over time, as he got older and was married, he was convicted that he needed to begin to seek God, begin to bring God into his home as he was raising children of his own. And so Nick scrambled around and he was able to get a hold of a piece of scripture. And he chose just to read this every evening with his family and talk about it. He did this time and time again, and the, and the family began to ask him questions. They began to seek out and get more and more literature, eventually some more Bible scripture and so forth. And the family just became enthralled with the ability to read God's word and hear from God through his word. Over time, neighbors started to gather around because you can't be very isolated. Pretty soon people were coming into his home and saying, hey, can we sit and listen too? And he said, no, 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 this is for my family. But they couldn't stay away. It wasn't long before that crowd grew to 75 people. The authorities began to notice this. And came and, uh, to, uh, to uh, Dimitri and threatened him with his life. And if you continue this, and he says, I'm just reading God's word. This is not a church. But they said, yes, it is. They threatened him over and over again. And he continued on in his faithfulness of reading God's word. He wasn't educated. Uh, he didn't have theological background. He had very little resources to the Bible or anything. But he continued to do this. And one night... In the middle of one of the gatherings, he was sitting, sharing from God's word. The authorities busted into his home, and they came and, and grabbed him and beat him up in front of everybody after many, many threats, and they were dragging him off to prison. On the way out the door, an older woman, a grandmotherly woman in the crowd, stood in front of one of those guards and shook her finger in his face, really she might realize that she might even kill him. And she said, this is a man of God. If you do anything to harm him, God will kill you. Two days later, that guard fell dead. Can you imagine what happened in the community? Within two weeks, there was the, the, the group that were gathering was 150. And Nick was eventually, or not Nick, uh, Dimitri was eventually dragged off to prison. Now, I'm not going to leave you there with the story. We'll come back and pick it up. But I share that with you this morning to try to grasp, get you to grasp with me the depths of this concept of how much do I love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? And today I want to talk about this question as followers of Jesus. I feel like it's a question we need to answer. It's a question we wrestle with. Time and time again, although we don't even probably think about it, we probably aren't even consciously aware of it, but yet in his book, The Insanity of God, Nick was trying to get at this, and he was trying to get at this by answering the question, is Jesus worth it? Is it worth it for me to give up what I give up and to endure what I endure for the sake of Jesus? Is he worth it, or should I just go on and live my life and quote-unquote maybe enjoy life? So as I mentioned, I want to dive into the intensely intimate places of your and my soul as we ask this question or wrestle with this question, how much do I love Jesus? Our immediate response to that question might be, well, I love him a lot. Look, I'm here today. I give up everything on the weekend to come and spend an hour or two and door, maybe an hour or two or three of traffic coming and going to gather together. I tie, I do other things, I'm a missionary. There's all kinds of things that would immediately come to our mind if you were confronted or if I were confronted or as we're confronted. 
confronted this morning. Do I love Jesus? Um, as I think about that question, one of the things I realize that probably causes us to stumble, one of the things that probably trips us up with a question like this is our definition of love. Easily we can say, well, love is a good feeling. We have a lot to say about, oh, I love Jesus. I sing to Jesus. I listen to music all the time. Those are all good things. But yes, my love of Jesus is demonstrated by what I listen to, by what I passively receive. Or we might go a little bit deeper. We might say, look at my actions. Look at the things I do for Jesus. I do this. I do that. I do the other thing. And you and I have all known, and maybe some of you are here today, could list a list of things you do for Jesus. But in fact, you might not really even love them. Or maybe you can go a little bit deeper. Have you considered anything like a life debt, like I mentioned this morning? A love of serving Jesus no matter what the cost? Like being a slave of Jesus. This morning we sang the song, I'm free. And we are, we're free in Christ, but you know there's a very powerful thread from Scripture that we're no longer slaves of this world, absolutely, but we're slaves of righteousness. Slaves of Christ. Is that what drives you in your love for Christ? Being a slave for Him. I knew a guy once who said, when he was introduced, he said, Hi, my name is so and so, or I might introduce myself if it were me. Hi, my name is Joel. I'm blessed to be a slave of Jesus. Does that come to your mind when you think of loving God? When you think of loving Jesus? Perhaps now you can see where I'm trying to go to get a little deeper as we look at such a question like this. It's a more intensive idea of love, I think it's important in that question, do I love Jesus, that will help me to be able to answer that question. So I have two reasons this morning why I want to dive into this with you. And the first reason is that I want to draw you into my life as I wrestle with this question. You see, I might be old and gray and in my sixth decade of life and been a missionary for a long time and had the privilege to do a lot of things, but yet I stand before you as one who wrestles with this question. Do I love Jesus? If I'm honest with you this morning, I would have to say I really don't love Jesus very much. Or not nearly as much as I should. And I think all of us in our Christian life can always say that because until we see Christ face to face and become like Him, we are not like Him and therefore we can't love like we should, so it's a journey that we're on. Some of you might say, what? You're a missionary. Ted said 35 years in missions. What a demonstration of the love of God. What a demonstration of loving Jesus. But you know what that really is? That's me comparing myself to somebody else. Quite often my love, your love, our love, is relative to somebody else. If somebody says, How do you love Jesus? Absolutely, I do. I mean, compared to this man over here, compared to John over there, compared to this person over here, I'm doing much more than that person. And if you stop and think about it, you probably talk about your love for Jesus relative to somebody else who doesn't love him as much. How quickly do we go to evaluate our love of Jesus by somebody who loves him more than me? Somebody like Demetri. That's not usually the comparison that comes to my mind. So as I stand here this morning with you, I tell you, I wrestle deeply with this. The second reason why I want to look at this question this morning is that 
I'd consider myself sort of average. And I think that most of you are probably pretty average or a little bit better in this room. And if I wrestle with this, I think you probably wrestle with this too, or we should wrestle with it. So I want to invite you this morning to follow along with me and ponder more deeply this question, how much do I love Jesus? Now before I go on, I'm going to give you an opportunity to leave. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to wrestle with this with me this morning. Maybe we've gone a little bit too deep already just even talking about this question. But if you'd like to hear a little bit more and follow along with what God's Word has to say as I try to draw some conclusions from it, well then I invite you to stay. So in order to get at this question this morning, I want to look at this story, a story in Luke's Gospel. If you have your Bible, you can look there. I have the passage on scripture here on, on the screen here. But Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. A really cool passage of scripture. So in this particular passage, can you back up a moment, Eric? Back, okay, there we go. Um, what I want to do is look at two things, and hopefully if the slide works right, there'll be two things on here for you to fill out in your bulletin. I'm trying to be really uh, careful that you can fill in those blanks. Luke was a medical doctor, and he was also a Gentile. There we go. Thank you. Uh, this is something really interesting to do, because typically when we think of the writers of the, of the scripture, we think of they were Jews, they were followers of Jesus, but Luke was a medical doctor. He was, uh, he was trained, he was scientific in his thinking, he was careful in his detail, he wanted to portray things in an important way. He was also a Gentile, like you and I, probably all of us in this room are Gentiles, and so he wanted to try to communicate about Jesus being the Son of Man to the Gentiles. He wanted to make a point about that. It's very important for him to do. So Luke goes on to do that in, 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 his, in his book that's got to his name. Luke is also the only one of the gospel writers who actually says why he wrote this book. He wrote it to encourage and to affirm the faith of Theophilus. Now, I wish we had a chance to talk about Theophilus. That would be another exciting thing to talk about, but we don't. You can maybe go study a little bit more about that, but that's what he wanted him to do. And he wanted to get this concept across to him. The other thing that's uh, interesting about this is that uh, Luke's, a lot of stories in Luke's gospel are unique to Luke. You know, we read the story of Jesus' birth. We see it in Matthew and Luke and other places, and we see other stories, and we look at the the Gospels, the parallel Gospels, and we see stories, and sometimes we get a little bit different picture from one story or another, depending on how the author looked at it. But there's quite a number of stories in Luke's Gospel that are unique to him. They aren't included in the others. And it's a fascinating study if you want to do it sometime. Go and look at all those passages and look at the, the thread that flows through them as a medical doctor who's a Gentile trying to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of Man to the Gentile world, and it's, a, it's an interesting uh, shade of glasses to put on as you look at Scripture. You might want to look at that. But let me talk about the context of this passage real quick, and then we're going to get into it. But at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus heals the son of a centurion, a, uh, uh, again, a Gentile. And uh, then we see Jesus raising up the son of a widow woman. There was this uh, funeral procession coming out of the city as Jesus traveled, and and here they come, and, and they're, they're carrying this young man to be buried who died, who was the son of a widow. Well, in, in the cultures of Palestine in those days, it was family members, just quite often like you see here in, in the culture here in Asia, where the younger families take care of the older, much more so than maybe in a Western context. So you understand the importance of that. And Jesus raises up this, this woman who was probably a Gentile as well. And then we see that we hear about how John the Baptist is in prison. 
And he sends people out to Jesus and he says, are you the Christ? I need to know. I, I'm sitting here in prison. I'm probably going to die for my faith. But I want to know before I do, are you the Christ? And then, of course, Jesus gives his response. So this is the context that we find ourselves in as we move in to look at um, this passage in Luke, beginning in verse 36. So let's move on. Let me read this passage with you and make a few comments and then we'll draw some conclusions. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping him with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing him with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Uh-huh, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now I wish we could stop right there. There was so much in that little passage that uh, we can unpack that could challenge you and me in our walk for Christ. For instance, how many times we say, Ah, sinner. And we seek to condemn them. But we must move on because that's not the point of what we're getting at today. But I just want to highlight a couple things here. First of all, it seems like an impromptu sort of impromptu sort of invitation. Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's home to dine with him. He had just been there and all these activities we talked about in the contest. The interest, another interesting thing is the Pharisee's not named yet in the story that Jesus is telling. The Pharisee knows the woman. Be a woman of sin. How interesting is that? A sinful woman showers love upon Jesus. A sinful woman showed Jesus magnificent love. The Pharisee passes judgment on Jesus and the woman. On Jesus, he said, if only he knew or he thought that. The woman, he says, of her, he knew her to be sinful, probably a prostitute. So we see the Pharisee judging both Jesus and the woman. Now follow along with me as we go through the stories. I want to get to the end of it in order for us to make our point. Moving on to verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A money letter had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So Simon, which of them will love him more? Listen to Simon's answer. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus replied, you have judged correctly. A fascinating story. Uh, incidentally, a denarii is about a day's wage, so that puts it in perspective. Or if you look at it, one of these debtors owed about 10 times more than the other, but nonetheless, they were forgiven. And Jesus is basically asking Simon's permission to challenge him. I've just come into your home here. I'm dining with you. You've been out in the town and through the countryside watching what I've done. So Jesus says, I want to challenge you. And Simon, in essence, to use today's vernacular, says, okay, go ahead, Jesus. Simon basically, uh, or Jesus tells Simon a story about two debtors, as we see here. Money lender forgives each of them. And the big question is, who would love the money lender, lender more? You know, I love Simon's reply here. 
Not because it's snide or sarcastic or anything like that, but this idea of, I suppose, the one who is forgiven more. Well, of course it's the one who is forgiven more, right? Well, you know, that's me a lot of times. As I look at what Jesus is doing in my life, or God has challenged me about something in my life, it was like, yeah, I guess I ought to, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Um, so anyhow, it's just really interesting. And Jesus tells Simon, he is correct. He says, you have judged correctly. Jesus asks the Pharisee which debt he would love, and he responds, I suppose, the one who was forgiven more. Now again, a lot of interesting things we can pick up in the passage, but let's move on and dive in a little deeper here and get to the end of the story. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Now, picture this for a minute. Jesus is sitting here, his feet are extended away from the table, most likely. Simon is here, and Jesus is going to talk to Simon, but he does it by looking at the woman. Okay? Try to just keep that picture in mind. I think it's just fascinating when you do that. So, uh, turning to the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, now again, um, he's talking to Simon, I think looking at the woman, he says, Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now verse 47, just tuck that in the back of your mind as I think a key passage here that we're going to come back to. But just imagine this account that's going on here. Nowhere is a woman ever said to say, to say anything. She's not recorded to say anything. She just comes in to do this. If you want a, a little study of intrigue and maybe a little speculation, Try to read through scripture to figure out who this woman was. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, specifically who she was. And I'm not going to get into that now for the sake of time, but it's a fascinating study. So anyhow, before we go on, I just want to mention in here, Jesus compares Simon's lack of love to that of the love of this woman. You notice here, Simon didn't say or do anything. There was no actions on his part. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus points out. All the customary things of the day that should have been done, there's three of them listed here. Simon didn't do any of them. He was somewhat ambivalent, and it just kind of begs the question as to why did he even ask Jesus? But the woman does many, many things to demonstrate there's actions in her, uh, in, in her attitude and what she does to demonstrate her love for Jesus. And again, if you think about who this woman might be, go back into chapter 6 and look at some other passages of Scripture, it, it, it gives you insight into why this woman, perhaps, was so enthralled and so in love with Jesus and wanted to demonstrate it to him. So anyhow, we see this going on, and Jesus sort of lays it on Simon with verse 47 there. Her sins which are made have been forgiven. She loved, but she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Notice that the others sitting at the table there wondered how this man could forgive sins, which actually we'll see in the next couple verses here. And then Jesus says to her, your sins are, are, are forgiven. So the last two verses quickly, and then we'll get to draw some conclusions. Those who were reclining at a table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? That he can even forgive sins. And then we, it's recorded that Jesus said to the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at the point of interest of the others sitting at the table who were more interested in how can this man forgive sins? They totally overlooked the, the magnitude of what's going on. And they compare their interest to Jesus' pronouncement. If you compare that interest, your, uh, their interest with Jesus' pronouncement to this woman, what a beautiful story. Here's a miracle unfolding right in front of the sinful woman. Whether she had been forgiven her sins before or not, it's, it's implied that she was probably a woman of the town, a prostitute. And, and yet, the people around, Simon himself, are ambivalent to this, and they miss a really exciting thing that's going on. You know, there are so many things about this story that are intriguing, but we don't have time to dig into them. But you might be thinking, and I'm just going to mention some of them, and you might take and think this, through this passage in light of it. What made the Pharisee invite Jesus into his house for a meal? What do you think the motive of having Jesus into his home? Why did the Pharisee give Jesus, why didn't he give Jesus the customary greeting? Why does Jesus refrain from even using Simon's name initially? How would Luke know that the Pharisee, what the Pharisee was thinking? In, in verse uh, 42 there, verse 39, we see that, that Luke writes that, that the Pharisees were thinking, if they only knew, how did he know that? And Jesus, uh, is Jesus making a direct parallel between the parable and Simon and the woman? In other words, are both of them forgiven of their sins? Why does Jesus tell Simon that he has judged correctly rather than answered correctly? If this woman became saved, as we see in verse 50, where are all the things that we feel are necessary today for someone to be saved? You have to pray a prayer, you have to repent, you have to accept, you have to raise your hand, you have to walk the aisle, all these things. Where is that in this story? Because nothing, this woman did absolutely nothing other than shower her love on Jesus, and he pronounces her sins forgiven and to go in peace. And on and on the list could go. But I invite you to perhaps meditate on this passage and answer some of those questions. But, you know, a lot of those questions to me are insignificant. I find it interesting as I have opportunity to sit in maybe some Sunday school classes in churches or in some Bible studies with people, that these are the topics of discussion. These are the questions that we want to ask. The Bible trivia. And we miss the important question of how much do I love Jesus? Which is what this passage is really getting at, I believe. So let's get on and see what is the point of the story. And by, through this process, we're going to draw this to conclusion. The point of the story is this. Jesus is challenging Self-righteous, rigid, religiosity. Now those are a lot of big words, right? But I've been around Filipinos enough to know that your English is better than mine. Self-righteous, rigid religiosity. Religiosity is the actions that we go through that proclaim we're Christians. Oh, I'm part of such and such a church. I go to CWC. I'm part of the Long Baptist Church. I go to Bible study. I tithe. I do these things that... Those things in and of themselves are religiosity. They're empty if they are not attached to actions and things that demonstrate how much I love Jesus. You can come here every Sunday, in and out, never miss one even when you're sick. And if you think that that's going to bring you favor, if you think that demonstrates your love for Jesus, it doesn't. It's what you and I do in response to his call in my life. In response to what he's done for me that this passage is getting at. And uh, that's what I want us to see. Jesus 
wants to go to the heart of the matter. He's not interested in the vastness of what can be known about religion. Knowledge is an important thing, but we can be puffed up with knowledge. We can be caught up in knowledge. Why is it that this story compares the religious men of the day, those who were the most religious of the day, who in a sense reflected religiosity with this woman who was a sinner who should have been cast into hell forever and ever? I think that what is happening is Jesus is making a very important point. So the point is this. Many sins forgiven equals much love. And few sins forgiven equals little love. Okay? Many sins forgiven equals much love. And few sins forgiven equals little love. Now, on the surface, we can get hung up on that. And lots of places in Scripture challenge us about this thing. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying first. Okay? What Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that the more someone can accumulate a lot of sins and then be forgiven of those sins, then the more they will love Jesus. It's not a matter of stacking up a lot of sins or finding somebody who supposedly has a lot of sins who comes to Christ and therefore they're forgiven of those sins and therefore they're going to love Jesus more. So that's not what Jesus is saying. I, I'm, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 6, all of us are probably aware of that, but the Apostle Paul talks about the grace of God. And where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And what's the question that Paul asks there in chapter 6? Well, then should I sin more so that there could be more grace? May it never be, he says. So this is not Jesus trying to say that we need to accumulate sins, we need to talk about the sins in our life. A lot of times when I hear people's testimony, it seems like sometimes there's more attention given to the despicability of sin in my life and then God got a hold of me and saved me and we stop. We know the fact that any of us are saved is a magnificent thing that God does in our life to redeem us and to bring us back in right relationship with Him. That in and of itself is the most amazing thing. So when we come to Christ, our testimony ought to reflect what happens afterward. Not what happens before, otherwise we focus and we raise up and elevate sin. Nor does someone have to be the most despicable sinner in the world in order to love Jesus or be saved by him. Jesus is not saying that. What is Jesus saying? That's what we want to get at here as we draw a conclusion. Jesus is saying this. The main point here that I listed, this is what he's saying. The more someone understands the impossible gap between my sinfulness, okay, there's a gap, my sinfulness over here, and the infinite magnitude of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ over here, imagine a huge gap, and that there is no human way to bridge that gap since it can only be bridged through Jesus' death on my behalf. Okay, you get that? The despicability of sin over here, the righteousness of God over here, and I'm separated by this huge gap. There's no bridge you and I can build between them. And if you're a Christian, you totally understand that. But my reflection of love for Jesus will be reflected by greater love for Jesus because my life will demonstrate a total surrender to Jesus bidding, for we recognize our privileged place of being a slave of Christ. 
Do you consider yourself a slave of Christ? Do you consider yourself someone who will drop everything for the sake of your Savior? Who bridged the gap from left to right for me? That's what answers the question, how much do I love Jesus? It's not a matter of just my singing. Singing is important. We're to lift our voices to God. We're to praise and worship Him. But what happens here on Sunday morning is really symptomatic. It's just a, a result of the worship of the life given to Christ 24-7. Or put it another way. <clears throat> the more I grasp what Jesus saved me from, the more my life will demonstrate absolute surrender to Him. Think about this woman, this woman of the, the town, a sinner, a prostitute. You can add whatever you want on there. Just think of that woman coming. And here it's like, what right do we even have to touch Jesus? And this Pharisee, the religious leader in the town, the religious elite that we see Jesus confronting all the time, that are puffed up by the things that they do because I'm in this position, I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee, whatever it might be. And yet, who is the one who really demonstrates their love for Jesus. It's the woman, the sinful woman. So let's just try to bring some closure here a little bit. What might be a proper response by you and me to the point of this story? You see, the Christian walk is not about doing a little bit better than last week. It's not about I've been pretty good for a period of time here. I haven't really done anything bad. The Christian life is about growing more and more like Christ day by day until the day we die. If we ever plateau in life, if our life demonstrates a ho-hum attitude to Christ, if we can't get out of bed or can't lift a finger or can't give an extra dollar for the sake of Christ, then our life does not demonstrate a love for Jesus. So again, how much do I love Jesus? How much do you, and as I told you, and I was very honest with you, I realize I don't love Jesus enough or as much as I should. Let me share with you several responses that we can have to this story and what I've suggested is the point of the story. Number one, and most of the world does this, is total rejection of Jesus. It's not too hard to look around and see people who absolutely do not love him. It's pretty easy to do. It's all around us. We read about the stories in the newspaper. That's one possible response. Another response might be excitement and thrill of being in the presence of other believers and singing and worshiping God with no demonstration that shows love for Jesus. If you and I walk out of here today after this beautiful service of worship and in His Word and, and, don't, and don't demonstrate anything or pick up a finger or lift a finger for anything for Christ when we come back next week so we can keep checking off the boxes and Sunday after Sunday, Jesus, I was in church, then we demonstrate a little love for Him. And we demonstrate that we have a little understanding of what he has saved us from. Or another response might be excitement and thrill that yields a degree of demonstration. Yeah, I might say that's me. You know, I'm a missionary. I've been doing this for 35 years. I can pat myself on the back and be excited about this. It's been a, a great ride. I believe we've been in the middle of God's will. But yet, in the middle of all that, I have to be honest that my love for God and Jesus is not what it should. Or a fourth might be a humble acceptance what Jesus did for me that drives me to grow more and more in love with Him 
that would be demonstrated by growing surrender to him and growing rejection of what the world entices me to worship. Every one of us every day faces this question in our life, whether you think of it or not. Things can come into our life that cause us to say, Jesus isn't worth it. Things can come into my life saying, I love Jesus, but not that much. And we all wrestle with this. Yours truly as well. Let me tell you about Dimitri. Dimitri was dragged off to jail. He was put in a prison of 1,500 hardened criminals. Most of them had murdered people. He was the only known believer in that jail. He committed to God that he was going to live for Christ no matter what. Every morning he would stand up and lift his hands in front of his little teeny tiny jail cell and he would sing what he called his Jesus song. Much to the consternation of the other prisoners who banged on the, the bars, who tapped tin cups on the bars, who yelled and hollered and threw things at him, including human excrement. Day after day, week after week, he endured this kind of thing. And the guards repeatedly would come and beat him and try and get him to sign a paper that says that he rejects Christ. One of his greatest joys while in that prison was to find a scrap of paper, sometimes the size of a postage stamp. And then some little piece of charcoal or something will allow him to write on that piece of paper the verses that he could recall from memory or songs that he had sung. And he would take those things in his little teeny tiny cell and he would up on the cement where, where water continued to drip in and in the wintertime actually froze. He would put those up as an offering to God and stand and worship God and repeatedly the guards would come and take that away and burn it in front of him. Week after week goes month after month and continually he kept up this practice. After a number of years, a good number of years in prison, he didn't know if his family was alive. The guards got wind of this, and they staged all kinds of things to demonstrate to him that his family was dead. They even brought a woman into the prison, dressed like her, didn't let him see her face, drug her in front of the cell while they were beating her, and said, we're taking your wife out to kill her. Well, that broke Dimitri. And he told the guards, I'll sign that paper. By God's grace that night, his, his wife, his children, and a brother sensed Dimitri was in tremendous persecution. They prayed through the night for his life to be spared. And by God's grace, Dimitri knew in his heart, he actually says, I heard my family lifting their voice for me. He stiffened his back, and the next morning when the guards brought the papers to sign, he says, I will not renounce Jesus. <laughs> they dragged him out of that cell, beating him through the, through the jail, and as that happened, all 1,500 men in that jail came to their jail cell, lifted their hands, and sang his Jesus song. Can you, can you see the picture? And the guards dropped him and stood back and said, Who are you? And he stood up bleeding and beating and he says, I am a son of a living God. 
few days, they took him back to his cell, and a few days later, instead of being executed, he was released from prison after 17 years. How much do you love Jesus? How much do I love Jesus? Don't compare yourself to somebody who you can say easily, I love Jesus more than them. I invite you to compare yourself to the major. When you ask that question, or when you answer that question. Let's close the word of prayer. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Well, actually, I'm going to bow my head today. I'm not talk to you. But I just want you to ponder in your heart this question. How much do I love Jesus? How much does my life demonstrate that? Are people drawn to Christ because of how I live, the peace I have, the joy to serve Him in the midst of difficult circumstances? Or do they just know me as someone who every Sunday goes off to a church somewhere and comes back, a church goer? They don't know or see anything else in my life about that. Am I seeking to live a life that would be reflective of Dimitri or Jesus Christ himself? I gave you a spot on the bottom of your paper. I encourage you, even now, to think about that. What is God saying to you today in light of briefly pondering? We've only briefly pondered this question. How much do you love Jesus? Perhaps in the quietness of this moment, for maybe a couple seconds here, what is God saying to you? I know what God's saying to me, and it frightens me. I'm not excited about how I need to answer this question, not because I don't love Jesus, but because I know what it means. A year or two ago, we led a Persian woman to the Lord, and it took her about a year to respond to the gospel. Because the first thing she told us when we shared the gospel clearly with her, she said, I realize to accept Jesus, I may die. After a year, she said, I'm willing to die for Jesus. And she yielded her life to Christ. And today is an example of serving Jesus in Iran as a result. Not a place I would want to go and serve Jesus. Not a place where I'd want to be to live for Christ. I get a chance to live in freedom. Which to me means my life ought to reflect more of a love for God. So Lord, as we close right now, I don't know what you're doing in each of our hearts. I know your spirit is here. You're working in our midst. You're working. You're challenging me. I'm sure each one of us is touched in some way, not because of eloquent words that I've said, but because of your word that demonstrates the importance of loving you like this woman who didn't care what was going on around. She was so enthralled with Jesus. She was willing to endure unbelievable shame to come and shower and demonstrate a love to Jesus. And as we see in Scripture, this woman was very effective in ministry for you. So Lord, I pray now as we close and look at this. I pray, Lord, that we would not walk out of here remembering the sermon. It was really great to hear Joel speak today. How cool was that? But that we would remember and burn into our minds and our hearts this burning question day in, day out. How much do I love Jesus? Or, Jesus, how can I love you more today so that the world might see you and me? May God have his way with each one of us. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.